Um, I think we can go ahead and dismiss the, uh, uh, our younger children to Children's Church uh, at this time. The rest of you want to get out your uh, sermon outline that says the resurrection by Christ uh, on it. And uh, so we've been going through John 11. I've noticed the last few weeks there's been a, uh, a few tears in the house. Um, hopefully you brought your Kleenex today. A, uh, but we are still in John 11, still dealing with the story of Lazarus, and we've come to the climactic part in the chapter. Turn with me to John chapter 11, starting at verse 38. Let me just set the scene for, for those that, that don't remember. Uh, Lazarus has died, and Jesus delayed his arrival until after he died, and now he has come to visit with Martha and Mary, and uh, they have questioned him why it took so long. Uh, they twice asked him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, and they've taken him to the tomb to see, and Jesus has wept over uh, the sin and the death and the suffering that he sees, and now he's standing there in front of Lazarus' tomb with Mary and Martha and all their friends who have come out with him. And that's the setting, starting verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to one of the most dramatic miracles in all the scripture a demonstration of the power of the Son of God, a power that is ridiculed in our day and age, that is not believed. Lord, this, we're told here that this power has been demonstrated that we might believe. And so we pray as we come to this text that you would build faith in our life. We ask you to do that for us right now, in Jesus' name, amen. You're leaving the church building, the funeral is over, the burial is next, and ahead of you walk six men who carry the coffin that carries the body of your son, your only son. You're numb from the sorrow, stunned. You previously lost your husband, now you've lost your son, and you have no family. 
And if you had any more tears, you would weep. If you had any more faith, you'd pray. But both are in short supply, so you do neither. You just stare at the back of this wooden box. And suddenly, it stops. You're not even out of the church yet. The pallbearers have stopped. You stop. And a man steps in front of the casket. You don't know him. You've never seen him. He wasn't, you didn't see him there at the funeral. He's dressed in a light brown corduroy jacket and jeans. You have no idea what he's doing. Before you can object, he steps up, looks right at you, and says, Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. This is a funeral. My son is dead. Don't cry. Who are you to tell me not to cry? And those are your thoughts. But they never become your words because before you can speak, he acts. He turns back to the coffin and places his hands on it, says in a loud voice, Young man, I say to you, arise. One of the pallbearers looks at him, now just a minute. But the sentence is interrupted by a movement suddenly in the coffin, in the casket. The men kind of look at each other and quickly lower it to the ground. It's a good thing they do because as soon as it gets down and, and touches the rug in the aisle, the lid slowly opens. Sounds like something out of a science fiction movie or a novel. Perhaps Rich has written this for us. He's our science fiction novelist. But it's not. It's right out of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, verses 14 and 15. Then he, Jesus, came up and touched the, the, the beer, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now be careful. Don't read that last part too quickly. Let's try it again slowly. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. It's an incredible sentence, don't you think? At the risk of overdoing it, let's read it all together. One more time. We're going to say each word out loud. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Good job. Let's do it again. This time, we're going to read it aloud, but very slowly, and pause between each word. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. What's odd about that verse? What is odd about that verse? Dead men don't speak. That's right. Dead men tell no tales. Dead men don't talk. Dead men don't sit up. Dead men don't leave their coffins. Unless Jesus shows up. Because when Jesus shows up, you never know what's going to happen. Jay Iris could tell you. His daughter was already dead. The mourners were already in the house. The funeral had begun. The people thought the best that Jesus could do was offer some you know, kind words about Jay Iris's girl. He had some words, all right, not about the girl, but for the girl. Luke 8, verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. 
And the next thing the father knew, she's eating, and Jesus is laughing, and the hired mourners were sent home early. Remember when John the Baptist, near the end of his life, sent some messengers to Jesus? He was confused. He wasn't sure. Is this the right guy? Am I really going to believe? And they come to Jesus, Luke 7. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And what did Jesus say? Jesus replied, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. A mother gets her son back, a father got his daughter back. They can tell you. The mother will tell you, the father will tell you, Martha can tell you, Mary can tell you because they have all seen the impossible. Let's turn to our passage in John 11. Because first thing we see there is the Lord's request. The Lord's request. See, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the climactic miracle in John's gospel by any standard of measurement. Its position in the gospel alone indicates this. It's the last of seven miracles. It's inserted just before uh, the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the length of the narrative, it's the longest miracle narrative, and also the incredible detail here reveal its importance. It's the uh, longest and most elaborately described of all the miracles. And the results of this miracle are mo more momentous than those of any other sign. <coughs> we read in our responsive reading this morning. It was actually about Palm Sunday. But it told us why the crowd was there that Sunday. Because they knew about Lazarus. This event is big news. And everybody uh, that was there is telling everybody, and they're going to draw a huge crowd. But it also works the other way, and you'll see some of that next week, because it increases the determination of the religious leaders to eliminate Jesus. But finally, most importantly, the deeper spiritual meaning of this miracle is striking and is essential to the theology of the Gospel of John, which is focused in believing in Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. In each of the miracles in John, there is a real miracle. But they're each told by John primarily because of the spiritual meaning found in them. John doesn't Tell us the miracles just to impress us. Jesus does cool stuff. There's always a deeper spiritual meaning. He healed the blind man. Well, we're blind people. You know, he healed the, the lame person. Well, we're lame people. And he raises a dead man. We're dead in our sins and transgressions. There's always a deeper meaning. Lazarus is certainly raised from the dead, but as John indicates, it's the report of this astonishing miracle that led the religious leaders to the conclusion that they have to get rid of Jesus now. In addition, it's also a picture of how a man or a woman who is dead in sin is brought to spiritual life by Christ. And as the feeding of the 5,000 
illustrated Jesus' claim in John 6 to be the bread of life. So the raising of Lazarus here in John 11 illustrates Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. And that brings us to this setting of Jesus, Martha, Mary, and a group of their friends standing in front of a tomb. Now, a typical tomb in those days had eight occupants. It's basically a hollowed-out room, a cave, and uh, they would put these indentations, kind of like built-in bunk beds, on the side of the cave of the tomb. And usually they'd have three on each side and uh, two or three in the back. It would hold anywhere from six to nine uh, places. And you never came out. It would put you in one of those places, and they'd come back about a year later when there was nothing but bones and kind of shove the bones to the back uh, so they could put the next person in. So when archaeologists find them today, they'll often find five, six, eight generations of people in the same tomb. And that's what tombs were like then. You know, they, they weren't like the cemeteries we have today that can stretch for acres and acres and everybody gets their own spot. And when they told you you were going to be buried with your fathers, they meant it literally. You know, it wasn't a metaphor. You know, you were going in the exact same spot that he went and his grandfather went and his father and all the way down. And because it was used often, they would build a groove in front of the tomb and they have a big stone or a rock of some sort to the point where they could move it or roll it and it was kind of functioned as a door. They could roll the stone in the front of the tomb, but when they had to use it again, they could roll it out of the way, use it, and then roll the stone back. So now we're here, and Jesus asked the stone to be rolled away in front of this Lazarus family tomb. Verse 38. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. May have been a poorer family. They couldn't afford to have the groove put in there on a nice round stone. So maybe they just put a big rock and leaned it against it. And they had to get a bunch of guys to pick up the rock and move it out of the way. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, Jesus' command, take away the stone, sends Martha into a panic. She doesn't understand that Jesus intends to raise Lazarus. Her concern is that her brother's body, after four days in the tomb, would have begun to decompose. And the Jews didn't embalm people uh, like we do, but they used uh, aromatic spices to temporarily mask the smell of decay. But after four days... The stench coming out of an opened grave with a rotting corpse would have overpowered the aroma of all the spices. They didn't have that many spices. And evidently, Martha assumed that Jesus wanted to take one last look at the body of his friend, but she's horrified at the thought of seeing and smelling her beloved brother's body in the state of decay or having uh, his body viewed by the public in this condition. And I love the way, I'm not a big King James fan, but they nail it in this verse. King James phrases it, 
Behold, he stinketh. That pretty much sums it up. I can understand how Martha felt. You know, with all this misery, why open the grave, you know, let the stench come out? Why look at the face of him now? It's too late. Jesus should have been here four days ago. She doesn't understand what Christ wanted to do. But Jesus brings her focus back to him by reminding her of his promise. Verse 40, the Lord's promise. And the lesson that Jesus had for Martha, and therefore for us as well, is that in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now these words, seeing and believing, sound pretty natural to us because we often hear that expression that seeing is believing. But you can hardly miss the fact that Jesus puts it the other way around. Believing is seeing, says the Lord Jesus. And how can he say that? Because he knows that God never made a promise he hasn't fulfilled. Consequently, to believe God is to put oneself in the place of blessing where you'll be able to see all that God has promised. And Jesus' statement links seeing the glory of God, which refers here to the raising of Lazarus, to believing, to faith. But the interesting thing about this uh, is that Martha apparently didn't have much faith at the moment, nor did anyone else as far as we can tell from this text. And Jesus said, did I not tell you? He's probably referring to uh, the message to Martha he had sent to the messenger, uh, recorded all the way back in verse 4, but then he finally arrives in Bethany four days later. Martha didn't expect a resurrection. You know, even when he had talked with her face to face, she didn't expect a resurrection. And when Jesus said, take away the stone, she replies, essentially, this is unwise. The body undoubtedly would have begun to decay. She doesn't expect a resurrection. Nobody expects a resurrection. She only thought that for some reason, Jesus wants to look at and mourn over the body. And the crowd that's standing there didn't believe in the possibility of a resurrection. I don't think this thought had even occurred to them. You see that all the way back in John 11:37. But some of them in the crowd said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Nobody there is expecting Jesus to do what he's about to do. So where then is the faith that's to result in seeing God's glory? And again, there's only one answer. If it's not seen in Martha or Mary or any of the others, the only person left in whom it can be seen is Jesus. He's the one who believed and therefore saw God's glory. Consequently, his trust in God at this point becomes a model for our own. It's not as if he hasn't already told them about this. If you go all the way back to chapter 5, Jesus, uh, we read Jesus saying there, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In either case, Jesus' reminder challenged Martha to stop being concerned about her brother's body and to start focusing 
on him. And the Lord promised her that if she would believe, she would see the glory of God revealed. But there's one more step before the miracle, and that's the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Let's camp here for a moment. Notice how Jesus prays before this miracle. Before he does anything, he thanks the Father. And he doesn't thank him for the miracle he's about to do. He thanks him for hearing his prayer. He's thanking God for listening and answering his prayers in advance of receiving the answer. And additionally, this prayer demonstrates the truth of John 5:19, where Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And Jesus has told them, and now he's going to show them, that he's totally dependent on the Father and completely obedient to the Father's will. He also states he's thanking God for the benefit of the others around him in order to build their faith in him as the Messiah. Last part of verse 42. That they may believe that you sent me. Now he's praying publicly, out loud, so that they can hear him. I don't think he's actually playing to the crowd here. I think his prayer is seeking to draw his hearers into the intimacy of Jesus' own relationship with the Father. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You've been out with someone or talking with someone and maybe it's time to say grace or something and you ask them to pray and they pray and you're just kind of like, they know God way better than I do. You know, you can just tell by their prayers. You know, and every now and then you meet somebody like that and, you know, I've learned always ask them to pray. You know, they really know this guy much better than me. And I think that's kind of the case here where Jesus is praying and just sort of drawing people in. And they just see, you know, like, wow, he really knows God. And so he's praying publicly. That's a good thing. I think that praying together, praying publicly, simply praying out loud builds faith. And building up faith gives you hope when you need it. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to pray publicly. I don't usually ask the elders and deacons. I basically say, you're an elder or deacon. You're stuck. You've got to come up and lead in prayer sometimes. I never ask them for permission to call on them to pray. I said, eh, you know, your name's on the blame line. I'm going to call on you. Be ready. Um, but they don't all like it. You know, some of them make them pretty uncomfortable. It's not natural. It's not easy. And they're just like everybody else. You know, some people uh, are easily embarrassed when praying out loud that others can hear them. Except, of course, when they're in a crisis or they're in the hospital or they're the ones staring at the tomb. Then they think prayer is probably a good idea. But prayer reveals the relationship you have with God the Father. And if you can't do it, if it doesn't come easy, if you struggle with the whole idea, then you have to examine, why is prayer so hard for me? You know, for the most part, you communicate the most with those you have a close relationship with. 
And prayer is simply communicating with God. And if you're not communicating with God, then maybe you need to examine whether or not you really do have a close relationship with Him. Now, if you're like me, and you find prayer to be hard work, one thing you can do is, is try writing your prayers down in a notebook or a journal. Sometimes when I get just stuck, that's something that works for me. I start writing things down. And you'll see if your prayers actually reflect your priorities. And then when you write them down, your prayers tend to be more balanced, too. You find it's easier to remember to pray for your community, your church, your family, your friends, not just be focused on yourself. And then you'll have a record of what God's doing in your life. And it's easy to follow one of those guides like uh, the ACTS acronym, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. And it's easier to get away from that sort of gimme, gimme, gimme mentality of prayer. I mean, so much of our prayers, so much of my prayers have been, Lord, please do this, and please do this, and please do this, thanks. Oh, my bad, you're a great God too, later, bye. You know, and I kind of try to tack stuff on at the end. For the most part, we don't find prayer like that in the scriptures, though. What we find is more prayer like this one from Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. When was the last time you thanked God for just listening to you? When was the last time you thanked anyone for just listening to you? Thanking God first, praying publicly, praying for faith, focusing on those around you instead of yourself. When these describe your prayer life, then biblical hope will return and will become an anchor for your soul. And the prayer of Jesus is like that, and it leads us to the moment of the resurrection itself. And it begins with the Lord's command. The Lord's command, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Once again, picture the scene. The stones being rolled away, they could see Lazarus' body, probably the remains of other uh, bodies in the tomb. And the crowd's kind of eager and pressing forward. And suddenly, they grow really quiet. And the sisters, Martha and Mary, had been there, had been weeping. And all of a sudden, they stop with a sense of expectation. And our Lord's eyes, which had been just a moment earlier weeping, are now aglow. And suddenly, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. He didn't have to shout, but he wanted everyone to comprehend the drama. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Now understand, Jesus didn't raise the dead for the sake of the dead. He raised the dead for the sake of the living. Put yourself there in this scene. One of the crowd, you're watching Jesus standing there in front of the tomb with Mary and Martha, and he shouts, Lazarus, come out. And Martha's silent as Jesus gave the command. The mourners are quiet. They're not sure how to react. No one stirs as Jesus stood face to face with a large rock covering the tomb and demanded that it release his friend. And as the crowd stares into the bowels of that grave, they see movement. No one else stirs, just Lazarus. I imagine the rest are pretty much frozen in place. And deep within the tomb, he moves. His stilled heart begins to beat. Wrapped eyes pop open. 
wooden fingers lift, and this mummified man in a tomb sits up. You want to know what happens next? Let John tell you. The man who had died came out. Read those seven words again. The man who had died came out. Slower. The man who had died came out. What's wrong with this picture? Dead men don't walk out of tombs. What kind of God is this? This is a God who holds the keys to life and death. They see Lazarus' body slide off that stone slab he'd been lying on, stand up, emerge mummy-like into the sunlight. Mary and Martha feverishly begin to unwrap him. There's this joyful carrying on as they wept over him and hugged him and danced about in their bare feet. It's unbelievable joy. Put yourself in their place. How would you have reacted to what you just heard and just saw? I mean, you're standing there watching Mary and Martha. You hear Jesus cry, Lazarus, come out. And those simple words cut through our doubt, you know, and our, our stupor of just standing there frozen. Suddenly it all becomes clear. This spell that had paralyzed us, it vanishes. And released, you know, we see Lazarus and we run towards this, our recently deceased friend. It's an odd phrase, recently deceased friend who's now standing there upright and kind of squirming. He's all wrapped up and maybe grave clothes make an appropriate uh, outfit for a stiff body on a cold slab, but um, kind of a morbid sight for a living person. And then laughter replaces grief and joy replaces sorrow as we begin to peel away all the strips of linen that are around him. You know, one after the other, just peeling off these strips of cloth from this man who had been buried just four days earlier. And although the fragrance of death oozed from his wrappings, you continue in excitement until they're all off and he can move about freely. And I imagine after a bath, uh, Lazarus is given a new robe, fit for one who's alive, and he puts it on with delight. And with that, John draws a curtain on the scene. He doesn't describe Lazarus' uh, tearful reunion with Martha and Mary. He doesn't describe the stunned reaction of the people in the crowd. He doesn't report on Lazarus' experience after the resurrection. All of that would have detracted for, from his reasons for recounting this miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified and the readers of John's gospel might believe that Jesus is who he said he is. You know, it's often been observed, I think, uh, as far back as I could trace, it was originally Matthew Henry, that the Lord's power is so great that if he had not addressed Lazarus by name, all the dead in that tomb would have come out. And one day in the future, that's precisely what's going to happen. And although this is the climactic sign of Jesus' earth, earthly ministry, the raising of Lazarus is just a pale anticipation of what's to come. Jesus' raising of Lazarus is a preview of the divine power that he'll display when he raises all the dead on the last day. He'd do it again. He promised he would. He's shown that he can. 
1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Who is this God who has power over death? It's the kind of God you want present at your funeral. The same voice that awoke the boy in Luke 7, that stirred the daughter of Jairus in Luke 8, that awakened Lazarus, that voice will speak again. And the earth and the sea will give up their dead, and there will be no more death. And Jesus has made sure of that. You know, one of my favorite writers is Brennan Manning. I don't always agree with him, but he has a way of getting to the heart of the issue. Do I believe in Jesus and what he says, or don't I, one or the other? There's no middle ground. Listen to what he writes. Ruthless trust ultimately comes down to this, faith in the person of Jesus and hope in his promise. In spite of all disconcerting appearances, we stare down death without nervousness and anticipate resurrection solely because Jesus has said, you have my word on it. It doesn't get any more ruthless. Either we believe in the resurrection and therefore trust in Jesus of Nazareth and the gospel he preached, or we do not believe in the resurrection and therefore do not trust in Jesus of Nazareth and the gospel he preached. If Easter is not history, we must become cynics. In other words, either we trust in the person and promise of Jesus and commit our lives to both, or we don't. Ruthless trust is an unerring sense way deep down that beneath the surface agitation, beneath the boredom and the insecurity of life, it's going to be all right. Ill winds may blow, more character defects may surface, sickness may visit, friends will surely die, but a stubborn, irrefutable certainty persists that God is with us and loves us in our struggle to be faithful. What does that look like? What does ruthless trust look like? One man who would understand what ruthless trust would look like and would feel like is a man named Bob Buford. Bob Buford is a Christian writer. He mostly uh, writes books for men. And in one of his books, he wrote about how he dealt with the loss of his son who had drowned in an accident on a nearby river. Listen to what he says. The search for my son, Ross, and his friend continued, and grace abounded in my life and relationships. They found Ross's body in the spring more than four months later, about 10 miles downriver. Before his body was recovered, we had found on his desk at home in Denver a handwritten copy of his will, dated February 20th, 1986, less than a year before the river swallowed his body. Through that long winter of fear and uncertainty, his words were also a grace to me. Ross began, Well, if you're reading my will, then obviously I'm dead. I wonder how I died. Probably suddenly, because otherwise I would have taken the time to rewrite this. Even if I am dead, I think one thing should be remembered, and that is that I had a great time along the way. More importantly, it should be noted that I am in a better place now. And the will directed how he wanted his earthly goods distributed, and he concluded his will with this benediction. In closing, 
I loved you all and thank you. You've made it a great life. Make sure you all go up instead of down. I'll be waiting for you at Heaven's Gate. Look for the guy in the old khakis, the Stetson hat, faded shirt, wearing a pair of Ray-Bans and a Jack Nicholson smile. I also thank God for giving me the chance to write this before I departed. Thanks. Adios, Ross. What a gift. What an incredible gift. And as horrifying and sad as it was for Bob Buford to have lost him, and Ross's disappearance and death provided the greatest moments of rare insight and the grandest gesture of immeasurable grace and hope that he could ever hope to experience. He said, utter emptiness and brokenness left me feeling awful and wonderful at the same time. The embraces of friends, letters and phone calls of concern, gifts of meals prepared and brought to our home were much needed signs of love. He says, there's a simple Quaker prayer about giving and receiving that I uttered the night after I lost Ross, and I pray often to this day. Because the Quakers used their hands as a type of religious artifact or symbol, the first part of the prayer is done with your palms up, visualizing all that you need from God. The second part is prayed with palms down, visualizing all your cares and concerns left in the lap of a benevolent and loving God. And he says, I used this physical prayer when I spoke at the church two and a half weeks after we buried Ross. And with palms up, I began, God, you have given my life into my hands. I give it back to you. My time, my property, my life itself, knowing it's only an instant compared to my life with you and Ross in eternity. And then with palms down, he concluded, Father, to you, I release the cares and concerns of this world knowing that you loved me enough to give your only son in my behalf. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And once again, I accept what you have done for me as sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen. And then he finishes this part of his book by saying, I live in two worlds. One is the world of distraction and busyness. It's a world of deal-making and scorekeeping, of stock market booms and busts. That world is like a cloud. It's going to perish. The other world I live in is where Ross is now, the world of the eternal. And it's the reality of that latter world that allows me to respond with confidence. Adios, Ross, for now. Jesus said, the high point of the Gospel of John, he stared death in the face and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.